Today on episode number 146 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, I get to settle back a little bit in my chair and listen to James Lang interview Ken Bain about teaching in higher education. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is The Space, where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm absolutely thrilled to be welcoming back to the show James Lang and Ken Bain, who have both been on Teaching in Higher Ed previously, but are coming back today for a little bit of a different format. Today, Jim has agreed to interview Ken Bain. They've known each other for decades and work together on and collaborate on different projects. And I just wanted to change up the format a little bit today and open up a different kind of a dialogue instead of me as the interview to people who I respect so highly. I'm just excited to be welcoming them back to the show and to get to hear their expertise and talk about their work. Ken Bain is president of the Best Teachers Institute, and Ken has spent much of his academic career at Vanderbilt, Northwestern, and NYU. Before becoming provost and vice president for academic affairs and professor of history and urban education at the University of District Columbia, the National Center for Urban Education, a post he left in July of 2013. Ken was the founding director of four major teaching and learning centers, the Center for Teaching Excellence at New York University, the Searle Center for Teaching Excellence at Northwestern University, the Center for Teaching at Vanderbilt University, and the Research Academy for University Learning at Montclair University. And interviewing Ken Bain today is his friend and longtime colleague, James M. Lang. James is a professor of English and the director of the Center for Teaching Excellence at Assumption College in Massachusetts, where he teaches courses in British literature and in creative nonfiction writing. Jim is the author of five books and more than 100 reviews or essays on topics ranging from higher education to British literature. James writes a monthly column for the Chronicle of Higher Education, which as a side note is absolutely amazing. And if you haven't read it, you definitely need to stop. Maybe don't stop the recording right now, but definitely check it out after you finish listening. It's wonderful. As well as contributing regularly to America and Notre Dame magazine. He edits a series of books on teaching and learning in higher education. He has delivered public lectures and faculty workshops at more than 50 colleges, and universities in the United States and abroad. Ken Bain and James Lang, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Thanks, Bonnie. Thank you very much. I cannot tell you how honored I am to have you both back on the show, and I'm so looking forward to just settling back in my chair and listening to two people that I respect so highly. Jim, let me just pass the floor over to you and settle in. Okay, great. I thought I would start by maybe just sort of giving listeners a little bit of the backstory on how Ken and I started working together. And Ken had been directing the Center for Teaching Excellence at Northwestern, and this was in the late 1990s while I was 
finishing my PhD up there in the English department. And I started working there um, at the center just on a part-time basis. Uh, and Ken did a really wonderful job of sort of mentoring me into this area of research and thinking about and learning in higher education. And I was just really impressed from right from the very beginning at the approach that Ken took to helping faculty think about how to improve teaching and learning in their courses, which was to look both at sort of models of excellence amongst teachers that he had studied for a long time, but then also to compare that with what was in the literature on learning. Uh, and look, when, when you looked at those two things together, um, came out with some really fascinating findings. So when I finished my graduate program, uh, Ken was kind enough to hire me there as the assistant director, and I worked at the Searle Center with him for three years. Um, then I took a job as a tenure-track professor, and but I maintained the interest that I had, had uh, developed with uh, Ken. And so ultimately, a few years into that regular teaching responsibility, started writing and thinking again about teaching and learning. And so that has kind of kept us connected over these long years. It's been 20 yes, years. It has. And so, <laughs> it's been a long time. And so now we're, we're happy to be able to work together again on some projects. And uh, you'll hear a little bit more about that at the end of the podcast. And I thought I would start by maybe asking you, Ken, to tell me a little bit about, you know, you and I both have a lot of opportunities now to go and, you know, give lectures and workshops on other campuses and meet a lot of faculty who are uh, working on their teaching or, uh, doing research on teaching and learning in higher education. And I'd like to kind of get a sense from, from you, what do you think are the kind of really positive developments we're seeing? What are the, what are the new directions that people are moving that, that seem really interesting and, and productive possibilities for how we can continue to push ahead in teaching and learning in higher education? Well, I think there are a number, uh, Jim, that have emerged in, in the conversations that I've had with with people uh, really around the world, but uh, of course primarily focused on on the United States. And one is that people are are paying far more attention to the research on how people learn. And they're beginning to think about creating learning environments rather than just teaching in the old-fashioned sense of uh, just delivering lectures. So we're seeing people doing some really fascinating things of creating uh, very special kinds of learning environments for people that are more stimulating than perhaps the old-fashioned lecture. And some of those are efforts that uh, extend outside the classroom so that uh, classes take on big projects of one kind or another or big questions. And out of those questions and projects, then everything that would uh, would be a part of the traditional learning goals of that course would be incorporated into those projects. So in the course of pursuing some larger goal, a goal that might be even uh, bigger than the class or even bigger than the discipline itself, people are learning uh, calculus or engineering or history or economics or, or whatever else. And these are very exciting kinds of developments because it uh, creates such a stimulating environment uh, for the students. Yeah, I, th I think that that for me has been something I've observed as well. And, and, and I've been particularly taken actually by sort of community engaged learning, which I know I remember you writing about in What the Best College Teachers Do with the faculty member right. in Texas who was having, what was that uh, faculty? Yes, yeah, Chad exactly, Richardson in exactly. sociology. 
Yeah, and I, and I remember reading about that in the book and just thinking, wow, that is such a fantastic way to get his students actively engaged in, in the community, but also, and in a really important project, but also to really deepen their learning. So, so me, I've become especially interested in community-engaged learning, community service learning. These seem to be really um, important and, and productive possible, you know, possibilities for students and uh, to, to get them to understand how the learning in the courses that they are taking can be relevant, can be useful, can be inspiring, can motivate them. So I've dabbled with this a little bit over the past couple of years, and I'm working on a, a community-engaged freshman composition course, actually. For the ah, fall. excellent, excellent. Yeah. Right, and, and I think I, I, it I, does have enormous potential in getting students excited about the discipline. Yeah, and even getting faculty excited about the discipline, it has the potential to be a rejuvenating approach for a faculty member. Yeah, so that seems definitely one to me. Now, I know you've also had an interest in, uh, in the past, you had an interest in sort of game-based approaches that drew on kind of elements of gamification or, you know, getting students involved with that. Do you see any, do you see that as still sort of being a productive kind of path? Oh, I do. Yeah, I do. And I, and I think it has very similar elements to the community-based learning in, in the sense that, in essence, what students are doing in those kinds of classes is they're pursuing a goal. And the goal is inherently fascinating or interesting to them, uh, whether it's playing a game or engaging in some community-based project. It's the goal. It's the question that the, that the goal in, entails that becomes so driving for the students. I, I think, as I often say to, to faculty members, that we have a lot of reason to believe that students are most likely to take a deep approach to their learning and have really deep intentions in their learning when they are trying to answer questions or solve problems that they, the learner, have come to regard as important, intriguing, or in some cases just beautiful. And I think uh, that game-based learning entails all of those elements, or at least can, and when it does, it becomes a very powerful uh, motivator for students and engages them in, in the discipline on a very deep basis. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the things that uh, I know you probably experience as well when you, when you work with faculty is you, you hear some common questions and sort of challenges that faculty describe to you. I know sure. sometimes, you know, there's, there's, there's a small set of questions I, I know I'm going to get almost every time, you know, I, I work with a group of faculty. Sometimes those kind of can point to things that are kind of bubbling up to the surface in, in, in higher education or, or ways in which you know, maybe new types of challenges are, are emerging for us that we want to try and address. Can you think of anything mm -hmm. that, you know, this is something that I almost always hear from faculty as a problem or a particular challenge they are facing? Oh, that's a really interesting question. And I think it does provide a window into a lot that's going on in, in higher education. One question, or let me, let me mention really two different questions, and they're very different in their nature. One is that uh, faculty will often say, I'm having great difficulty in getting students really involved in the course and involved in the discipline. That, that students will sometimes just almost sleepwalk through the course, even the best of students. They're going to be focused on the grade rather than on uh, the content and on the, on the promises of the course. So that's one type of, of um, complaint that I hear. And another one 
that is really quite curious in its nature because it's very different. And that is the faculty will say, I don't have enough time in the classroom mm. to quote, cover, unquote, all of the material that uh, I think I need to cover in the course. Now, I think in reference to that second one, and, and I tie the two together in, in uh, a way that I think is, is, is really quite important. When faculty are asking that second question, I don't have time to cover the material and how do I, how do I cover more material? In some ways, they're asking the wrong question because they should be asking, how can I create an environment and an opportunity for students to learn everything that I want them to learn rather than thinking about, quote, coverage, unquote, so that rather than thinking about having to say everything in the class, they should be thinking about how do I create those environments where students are, are most likely to learn and to learn very deeply and to pursue their learning uh, very deeply. You know, it reminds me of something. Um, so we were just on my campus having a session yesterday about how do we respond to student writing. And one of the things, if you look at that research on, on the kind of effective responses to student writing, and this is an area in which I teach, I teach writing and literature. And so one of the things, interesting things that research tells us is that if you sort of cover a student's paper with sort of criticisms and, and you know, aux in the margin, you know, AWK in the margin and correcting all their mistakes and writing lots and lots of feedback, that in fact, that often doesn't lead to learning. That the student in right. the face of that kind of massive wall of criticism will just sort of shut down and say, well, I didn't do very well on that paper. I'll just try more on the next one. As opposed mm -hmm. to actually sort of pausing and, and sort of um, taking that feedback and using it to improve. So one of the things that that research would imply is that it's much better to sort of identify one or two simple things that you can tell the student, this is what I want you to focus on improving for next time. And be willing right. to let, you've got to be willing to let a lot of go, a lot go and say there's a, you know, there, there's, there may be other problems here, but if I want to create learning, I've got to be willing to let some of that coverage of all those problems go and focus on the one or two things that matters. And I think there's kind of an interesting parallel here in that uh, when we step away from, we have to be willing to kind of step away from thinking I have to cover everything and I have to be right. willing to let that sort of go, which is difficult emotionally because we know it's all important and we're interested in it. But if we don't do that, again, we just sort of throw this wall of stuff at them. Um, I think that oftentimes leads to less learning. Oh, I think so. And, and of course, as you and I know, there, there's a growing body of evidence that that is the case, that people just simply do not learn as much under that circumstance. So I often say to people, all right, teach less better which means that you're going to create a learning environment where people are going to pursue some things very deeply. And also to think about, and this is a question that I often pose in workshops, to think about what are the two or three most important threshold concepts that students need to grasp in this particular area? Maybe it's about their writing, maybe it's about historical development or scientific thought or wh whatever the discipline happens to be. Maybe it's in mathematics, but it's to think about those threshold concepts 
and to begin with those threshold concepts so that you make sure that students begin to construct those concepts in their own mind. And once they do, then a great deal of the material that we want them to, quote, learn, unquote, will fall into place because they've built the structure in their own mind that allows them to begin to put things together. Yeah, that, that's a really, really interesting point. The, these, the, you know, c- coring things down to kind of two or three key concepts like that. First of all, it can be a really wonderful focusing activity for a, a faculty member as they're trying to put together a syllabus. But then it right. can also be really helpful for the students to always have those two or three things in view so that everything in the course kind of orients itself around those big things, which is something that we really know is a big difference between an expert and a novice learner. An expert learner in a discipline is able to see how everything in the field is connected and is able to kind of orient things around core concepts, whereas a novice learner, which is what a student would be, oftentimes knows facts just, you know, in isolation from one another uh, and and doesn't Mm -hmm. really see the structures and the connections or know why one concept might be more important than the other. Um, so that right. exercise of really trying to kind of boil it down to those two or three concepts seems really uh, crucial to me. And, and it's not an so, easy thing to do uh, for faculty members, I think, because uh, we take some of the concepts for granted, and being able to step back and articulate those to ourselves uh, can sometimes be uh, an extraordinarily difficult process on the part of faculty members. But I think it, it's a valuable step to uncovering some of the difficulties that we think we have with students. I love um, something, and I frequently will mention this when I'm talking to faculty, is where, you know, faculty members often are sort of like miners down below the surface digging for some valuable ore, and and the students are up there on the surface sort of wondering what you're doing down there, and you have to kind of retrace (laughs) your steps back up and try and get to that point where, you know, you can That's see right. things from a different perspective, and I just love that. I love that way of thinking. I think that comes out of a, a very simple but profound process that we've all engaged in, and that is that we are currently interested in certain questions because we were once interested in another question, and we were interested in that question because we were interested in still another question and so on and so forth. And, and what we have to do is to retrace our own intellectual journey to go back to the surface and to begin with those questions that are going to intrigue the students and the students are going to find fascinating and then in some sense to help guide them on the journey that will allow them to see the significance, the power of the questions that we as advanced learners want to raise for them. And only then yeah, can they great. become engaged. Yeah, that's great. That's a really good way of thinking about it. So one of the things that I often hear from faculty members as well, and, and I hear this from people who work in faculty development too, is that when, when, when professors first start sort of trying to make changes to their teaching, that you know, it doesn't always go as well as they would like at first. It's just like anything, you know, they need some kind of practice with it and some time, and it might take a semester or two or three before putting some of these kinds of uh, changes that we're talking about into practice before they really start to work and before they see the kind of results that, that they might have been hoping and expecting to see right away. You, have you heard that from faculty members as well, and do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, indeed I have, and I, 
also have experienced that in my own teaching. I remember back 20, 30 years ago as I began to explore some of these ideas and approaches, uh, uh, they didn't always work out well the first time I tried them. And I had to tweak them in some way that uh, would make them work well. I remember one innovation that I, that I implemented must have been around the late 80s. And uh, it, it really failed miserably. And I made some very small changes the next year, and it was probably the best class I ever taught. So I oh, think we have to be patient with the process. And I, that's one of the reasons why I like your new book, uh, Jim, uh, because uh, on small teaching. Because I think sometimes what we have to do is to bite this off in smaller chunks and to try out some small things that, that are very powerful. And I think that's what your book explores is how that that small teaching, those small changes can uh, produce some rather significant results. Yeah, and I, I obviously I agree with that. <laughs> but, you know, part of the idea of small teaching, too, as well, is that while people can take these small steps, my hope is that when people do take a small step and they see it having a positive impact in their teaching, that they, they become more open then to exploring other right. areas and kind of trying to start to see their way to those larger goals. I mean, the other thing I, I, exactly. I forgot to mention, I forgot to mention at the beginning was, you know, in terms of kind of our history together, when I became a faculty member after having worked with you at the Searle Center and, and become very familiar with the ideas that, that you were um, putting together for the book, I kind of wanted after a couple of years to, to take those ideas and think about, you know, how did they really play out in practice when I tried to put them into play into my own classes? And that was ultimately what kind of led me to, um, to, to my own writing about teaching and learning was, you know, taking these kind of larger frameworks that you had built and that I had really, you know, believed and bought into. What did they look sure. like in, in the ground, in the classroom, on the, in, in the everyday level? And that, that kind of came to fruition, actually, in small teaching, which still works very much under the frames of, of the kinds of ideas that you have written and talked about, but tries to, to think about them in those uh, smaller bite-sized chunks. Sure. And I think that's what we all have to do is to begin begin the process and to begin to think about it and to realize that sometimes we may have to make adjustments as we go along and not to give up with one failure or one difficulty with it. Uh, it it's, it's an extraordinarily challenging enterprise to foster somebody mm -hmm. else's learning. And we have to, to explore it as fully as possible. And that's part of what makes it such an interesting and, uh, you know, profession is that, that there's always new challenges, always new things to think about. I was just thinking about this because I, I is in the second half of the semester in this class that I have taught many, many times. I, and, and they have to do some difficult readings and I've never done anything like uh, this before, but I said, you know, what, we're going to, I'm going to start giving you guided reading questions, which will be posted to the course management site. I want you to look at the guided sure. reading questions before you do your reading and and those will help you make better sense of what you're going to be reading. So I did this. I started. I announced this. I made a big fanfare about it. This is a new thing we're trying. And the first day they came back, I could tell that the, about half of them hadn't bothered to look at the guided reading questions. So then I had to go through and say, okay, so now how am I going to make sure that they understand these are valuable? And it, it, it's just been, you know, it's been one of these things. It's been like kind of a new, interesting challenge for me to think about how to do this and. But that, to me, is what right. keeps teaching interesting. We're, we always have to kind of keep thinking about the particular group of students we have in front of us, what's going to help those students, 
and how we can um, best contribute and, and foster their learning. So I think this is the time yeah. of the show when we do recommendations, Bonnie. Yes, this sounds like a good time. Thanks for both of you for that that wonderful interview. It was so fun to hear you. And I was biting my tongue though when you were talking about small teaching because our university just wrapped up a book group on it and there's so much to say there. And it's just, it's fun to have little steps. And I think you said before that big teaching is on its way sometime in the future. Is that still correct? Sometime in the future, though, small teaching has kept me busy <laughs> with <laughs> workshops and lectures, so it's not coming as soon as I would like, but it will come eventually. Wonderful. Well, I wanted to say for my recommendation, first of all, last week I did a little bit of a different episode, and I shared some of the challenges that we're having with a family member who's experiencing cognitive decline, and I really opened up my heart to the podcasting, and I blogged about this as well this past week, having absolutely no idea how many of you would write to me. And actually, even a video on Twitter <laughs> for all the way from the UK. How wonderful. I, I sometimes feel like I forget that there's people out there who listen to, I mean, even though it's downloaded by thousands of people, it doesn't quite click in my mind yet. Just what a wonderful community that we have here. And I, there are people at my institution who I'm friends with and who also listen to the podcast. So I got notes of encouragement from them, of course. But I felt just this overwhelming support from this wonderful worldwide community of people who care about teaching and who care about our students. So my recommendation this week is just to remember we're never alone in this. And in my particular experience, there's a personal issue that's impacting just my my level of worry and stress on a given day. And I know I now know that I'm not alone in that either. And I heard from so many of you who have family members that are experiencing cognitive decline, and you've had to make some difficult choices and navigate some difficult roads. So my recommendation is just for us all to remember we're never alone in this. As we do what Ken and Jim have advised, and we start to take risks in our teaching, we're going to fail. That's a promise that we all have for you today. But when we fail, we're never alone. And there's just so many wonderful people out there who we can just come around each other and encourage each other and offer advice. So thanks so much for everybody who wrote in or tweeted or even the video just was such a kick to me. And you really encouraged me this week. And um, remember, we're never alone in this. I'm going to pass it over now to Jim, who has his recommendation. Yeah, thanks. And this podcast has been a great vehicle for fostering a lot of that sense of community. I will recommend the book that I have. I'm in the middle of writing a series of columns for the Chronicle of Higher Education on distraction in the classroom. Uh, and the book that I'm focusing on is called The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World, published by MIT Press at the end of last year. And it's a really wonderful book. I think it provides some fantastic information about attention and how our attention systems work. It doesn't specifically draw conclusions from that to you know, classroom teaching and building learning environments for students. And I'm trying to do that in the column, but I think the columns would be just sort of a richer experience for people uh, if they've read the book. And, and, and I think it's just a wonderful book for people to read, to think about their own experiences with attention and distraction. So um, I really recommend this book very highly called The Distracted Mind. And we'll let Ken finish with his recommendation. Okay. I'm, I'm going to recommend the our summer institute that uh, you and I are doing together, Jim, uh, along with some other colleagues, uh, the Best Teachers Institute, which is June the 20th through the 22nd. Now, the, the institute actually has filled, but 
We have worked with the hotel where we're holding it to secure a little bit additional space. And I think we're going to be able to open up 10 or 12 additional slots in the in the program. So if anyone is interested in, in taking one of those uh, positions, go to www.bestteachersinstitute.org. And that's uh, June 20th through the 22nd in the New York City area and uh, one of the New Jersey suburbs. So we'd like to uh, love to have some of the folks who are regular listeners to this podcast to join this community of folks who come together and explore in great depth over three uh, days in June uh, some very profound issues about teaching and learning. Wonderful. And the link to the Best Teachers Institute, the Distracted Mind, and other resources that we mentioned on the episode will all be available at teachinginhighered.com slash 146. Thank you so much to Ken Bain and James Lang for joining me today on Teaching in Higher Ed. It's so wonderful having you here. Thanks, Bonnie. Our pleasure. It's been such an honor to get to talk to Ken Bain and James Lang on today's show and to change the format of the show a little bit. I've been thinking for a while about what it might look like to have two people interview each other and for me to sit back a little bit. And I'm so happy that the two of them agreed to have this experiment on the new format of episodes be a conversation between the two of them. Thanks to Jim for arranging things with Ken and preparing questions to interview him. It was just wonderful. And thanks to all of you for listening. This is the 146th episode. 150 is coming. And if you have any recommendations, that's going to be an all recommendations show. And people are, are going to teaching in higher slash contact and you can actually record yourself right on the internet with your computer's recording device. And you can also, if you prefer, you could just record it on your phone or what have you and then send me an email of that. But again, it's going to be episode 150, an all recommendations episode. And we've already got some recommendations coming in. So thanks to those of you who have already phoned or recorded those. And if you haven't done it yet, probably want to do it pretty quick in the next few days because I'll be recording soon in early April. So thanks again for listening. As always, if you want to get the links to all the wonderful resources that Ken and Jim talked about, you're going to want to not have to remember to go to teachinginhighered.com slash 146. If you go to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe, you can have a single email come into your inbox each week with the show notes and also an article that I write most weeks about either teaching or productivity that comes automatically, but I don't bombard you with a lot. And you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks again for all your great messages this week after the episode that aired the prior week with me sharing some of my life stuff that's going on. You really are a wonderful community. And I look forward to our future opportunities to connect. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.